So I mentioned um, earlier in the service that one of our themes today is um, the freedom that Christ affects for us. And I would just invite you in your mind to think about how that freedom would have been experienced long before there was a constitutional democracy in our country. Because I think that there's a tendency for us to think about the freedom of Christ with an equal sign, with sort of freedom to have rights. Does that make sense? And I, and I think these are different things. Because before a constitutional democracy, Christians experience this freedom for generations upon generations and generations. So we might need God's help with that, so let's pray. Dear God, uh, reach deep within us, expose to us our bias, both willing and our unwitting bias. And um, we are so eager to not only connect with you, but to understand once again what you are really about and how we might function in your world as your disciples. So we pray that you would do your miracle. You'd take my words, you'd take all of the thoughts of our hearts and even the reading of your holy scriptures and transform them into a moment where you are present for us in new and unexpected ways. We pray this on the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, thy great city, and proclaim to it the message that I shall tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. 
and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. It'd be the reading of today's gospel. Thank you, John. Um, just a reminder that uh, the Assyrians were the ones in the story who lived in Nineveh. Uh, the Assyrians were uh, just awful, 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 awful conquerors. Skinned people alive, invented crucifixion, um, awful. So in our mind, as you think about Jonah, Jonah's being sent to who? ISIS? Hamas? We could go on probably all day. Would you go? That boat's looking pretty good, isn't it? And I didn't want to say this to the children, but when Jonah asked to be thrown overboard, and if you go back and check the story, the sailors who are not Jewish and who are following their own religion, um, they don't want to throw him over. But Jonah insists, because what they realize if they throw him over is that that is see and do suicide. And that's how Jonah tries to escape, first by sea, then by death. For Jonah, both of those are preferable than to going to an awful, terrible enemy and possibly seeing God accept their forgiveness and forgive them. But that's the gospel, isn't it? Because after the Assyrians came the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians came the Persians, and after the Persians came the Greeks. And the Greeks, even though we have sort of a bias for the Greeks because we like their architecture and some of their other stuff, were awful. They were awful. If you were circumcised, you had to reverse your circumcision. Otherwise, you were cast off. The Jews under Antiochus for Epiphanes were not allowed to worship their God. The Assyrians just beat you up and scared you to death, which sounds awful. The Greeks took your stuff and said it was always theirs. It's like someone showing up and moving into your house and saying, this was mine, I like the way I decorated it. And those are the people that the Apostle Paul welcomes into the gospel of Jesus Christ, into the adoption of what it means to be God's people with the Jews. So the gospel that we talk about, the work of Christ that we talk about, is robust. And the question I have is, are we actually up to it? Are we up to that world-changing reality?
Now, unfortunately, as soon as I say that, are we up to it? And because I'm standing up here in a robe behind a pulpit, that in and of itself can do the wrong thing. Uh, One of the great spiritual uh, leaders, Hildegard of Bingen, said, we cannot live in a world that's interpreted for us by others. Over years of preaching, I have tried not to do that for us here. I have, not, I have tried very, very hard to not suggest that you need to have Scott think. And yet, there is a temptation, I think, for all of us in this genre of sermon and congregation to have whoever is in my position do a little bit of our work for us. So sometimes that has to do with content. Sometimes that has to do with letting us off the hook. Does that make sense? But Hildegard said, we cannot live in a world that's interpreted for us by others. An interpreted world is not a hope. Part of the terror is to take back our own listening to use our own voice, to see our own light. Now, it would be a completely different sermon, and I won't go there, only to say that would be a wonderful introduction to why the Bible is put together the way it is, and all of its confusion, contradictions, and so on, because... Although someone could stand in my position and tell you, this is what the Bible says, it wouldn't be the Bible. It would be something else. And the scriptures are put together in such a way where we all have to take individual responsibility. We all have to decide. We all have to interpret God's world for ourselves. So I think that when we get to Paul's comments this morning, there's probably a lot of interpretation that's going to go on inside us. Ruthanna B. Hook says, Paul was clearly expecting the parousia. Do you know that word? Uh, The end of the world. Uh, So, um, gosh, you know how when there is sort of a new... um, not so much an invention, but all of a sudden we go, oh, that's why. So I think in medical science, when, um, when you had a fever, we used to think bleed the person, right? Get as much blood out of them as possible. And then at some point someone realized, oh, no, <laughs> probably not the best idea, right? And you have that insight. So up until, gosh, up until, for most of the Old Testament time, everyone thought that time was just cyclical. We can't even think that way, can we? We're so used to thinking of time as having an actual beginning and an end. No one thought that way. No one ever thought that way until just about now. Just a few hundred years before Jesus, some people started to believe and then it caught on that actually time wasn't cyclical, but it was linear. 
And so if it's linear and there's a beginning, then there's obviously what? An end. Well, so I'm in the rental car, I'm worried about what? Running out of gas. That's a very linear thing, isn't it? Right? Sometimes we think about that in terms of our own lives, in terms of our own health. We can think about that in terms of our bank accounts. We call the end bankruptcy, right? Or a bad check. But for the Apostle Paul and other Jews at the time, it just seemed that the world must be coming to an end because it kept on getting progressively worse. It kept on breaking hearts, disrupting families. And so the Apostle Paul believed that it would probably come to an end in his lifetime. And that spurred him on to travel over the known world to get out the message of the gospel, because he didn't have a lot of time left. So he was clearly expecting that. Scholars call that the parousia, the return of Christ and the day of judgment, as, imminent, as an imminent event that would occur in the lifetimes of those to whom he was writing. Paul lived in a state of urgent anticipation of this event with a vivid sense that the time has grown short and felt this urgency ought to shape all aspects of Christian life. Okay. But Paul was wrong. I mean, for that matter, Jesus was wrong, because Jesus talked about the end of the world too. That's a little bit less comfortable, isn't it? But that shows you that Jesus was a product of that age. The people who went to Masada believed the world was ending as well. Clyde Fant asked people like me, how on earth do you preach on a passage of Scripture that seems to have proved dead wrong? The present form of this world is passing away. Not yet, it has not, and we are 2,000 years on the other side of Paul's assertion. Well, Paul was wrong about the linear time. But we often find ourselves in moments where all of a sudden, just like the Apostle Paul, we feel time running out, or we feel the world slipping out of our fingertips of anticipation and control, and we need to figure out, what do we do? What do we do? So either personally or communally, we often have these moments. And I think it's interesting what Paul then says to do as opposed what not to do. And what Paul says basically reflects Jesus' own identity when he says that he's in the world, but he's not of the world. He's in the world but he's not of the world. So the key question I have for us, for me, 
is do we shape ourselves by the contours of heaven? What God is about. What our triune God is about in that relationship between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Do we shape ourselves by that while we're here on earth? Or do we hope to construct our own heaven on earth, whatever that looks like, and then assume that God will catch up on our suggestion and then start building in heaven? In other words, if we build it here on earth, we might show God how to do it, and God will build it in heaven. Now, I know that sounds really strange, right? But I think that happens a lot. I think that absolutely happens a lot, and it happens with the end result of overturning the gospel. So if the gospel is supposed to offer a type of freedom that allows even the worst enemies to be reconciled to one another through Jesus Christ and to come together in new relationship, right? When we build our heavens on earth, we do nothing but separate. Because let's talk about our heaven. Would our heaven include the organ? Of course it would. Down the street at the church, would it include the organ? Oh, no. Can you imagine in eternity listening to organ music? And we can just go on. What do the people politically believe who are in your version of heaven? What do they look like? We miss out on the radical nature of the gospel when we try, as Christians, to build here on earth, assuming that our buildings will be blessed by God. Uh, this was fascinating to me. Uh, recently, we took a, a long trip uh, driving down to California, and so I listen to books on tape while I drive, and I picked out a particular book about um, girls and neighbors, and it won a book award, and it's really well written. Um, and I thought my daughters would really enjoy listening to that book, but actually they wanted to listen to another book that I was listening to, uh, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism. And what I realized as they were listening to that book, they're like, oh my gosh, this is my life. Not so much here, but this is sort of the life that I navigate at school, that I navigate as a Christian. So this book was written and recently published by Tim Alberta and argues that the blood and soil nationalism that we see out there politically has gripped many of the country's Christians and yet is a... <laughs> is the latest in a long line of unprecedented um, disasters in terms of that gospel that I was talking about. Um, it might be something that would be interesting for us to read together and maybe talk about one or two times. Uh, what he shows is the way in which, I think in my terms, this idea of creating heaven on earth happened, and then believing that God will like the idea. And so all of a sudden, 
instead of being in the world but not of the world, all sorts of Christians are just trying to use whatever rights they have in this country to go after societal status, to go after power, and to go after control. And where this movement among evangelicals first started also with a type of moral piety, it eventually evolves. Anything goes, as long as it's helping with societal status, power, and control. And of course, because it fits that idea that if you build heaven and earth, you've also got to exclude. That's the way it works when we do it. It's not the way God does it, but we do it. It excludes. That then leads to the craziness that's going on today in the evangelical church. Um, like this type of crazy. Churches that were worshiping, uh, we don't have experience with this, but uh, churches that were worshiping 5,000 people on a Sunday morning are now seeing 100 people there if the pastors don't tow the political line that argues for societal status, power, and control. I think you're aware of this. There's some frustration in the evangelical church that Jesus and his teachings are too woke. Now here, I'm picking on the evangelical conservative church, but I could do the same thing with the liberal church. Because my experience with the liberal church is the liberal church cares about societal status, power and control just as much. I see it as a human thing not as a right and left thing. And I see it as a very dangerous thing. I suppose in some ways, if I'm absolutely honest, I see it as an educational thing, but that may just reflect my own bias as an educator. That may reflect my bias that probably doesn't have any theological backing, that if people knew better, like read the text better, then we wouldn't be in that situation. But you know what? As I talk to myself, I think, I don't think that's it. I think it has everything to do with, are we captivated by Jesus and Jesus' vision, or are we captivated by trying to get God to catch up with our idea and bless what we want to be true? And I see that happening all around us. Well, why is Paul telling us not to get married? Um, I went to, I think I mentioned, a Latin mass. I had all sorts of thoughts. You don't want to get me started. Ben Worthington, who's done some great work on the sociology of the biblical text, reminds us that Roman marriages were for the most part arranged and involved very little personal choice on the part of the participants and especially among the prosperous, and that's the key. The disposition of property was all important, and marriage became a means of enhancing one's property and status. So the cardinal characteristic of a good Roman marriage was concordia, that state of peace and harmony between husband and wife rather than love or affection. Like, you know how it goes, 
let's have peace in the workplace so that what? That was what marriage was about. Now, it's not just the Romans. Jump all the way back to the last century and the great Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian. Reinhold Niebuhr believed in terms of society that we could never really get people to love one another on more than just sort of your family and your friends' basis. And so he really pushed for justice. Now, there have been others who are critical of Reinhold Niebuhr for that, but you could understand why he would make that argument. And that argument still comes up today. So justice rather than love, but wasn't that Jonah's mistake? Wasn't Jonah sort of concerned about justice rather than love? Love that has a different calculation than justice. To add to Paul's words, uh, it's somewhat puzzling. We didn't really read this section, but if you go a little bit before the section that John read, what he basically tells people is if you're married, stay married, right? He basically says, don't do anything right now that's going to divert you from the gospel. Now, uh, that could just sound like management, but what Paul was often seeing was a situation where one spouse would become a Christian and the other wouldn't. And everything we know about building our kingdom on earth and wanting God to bless it would suggest that that relationship then would put that new Christian in jeopardy. And Paul says, no way. That's not how God works. God is not rewarding you for your purity or for your piety. God is concerned about the work of the gospel, which is to reconcile all people to himself. I think this is so strange that's one of the proofs for me that our faith is real. I don't think this has ever been popular with human beings. I think we do everything we possibly can to not do this. I think just with the kids, we love it when God forgives us and are not so sure when God forgives the person next to us. That's us. That's not God. And that's not what the church is supposed to be. One of the most liberal biblical scholars, Rudolf Boltmann, thought this was an absolutely important passage that we just read, which I find fascinating. Because if there was ever a passage, I would think Boltmann would sort of go, oh, I'm sort of embarrassed by this. It would be this one, right? Uh, this is what he says. Boltmann recognized that here, Paul presents an attitude or stance of living in the world, but not being distracted by the world. In the world, but not being distracted by the world, and that this attitude is authorized partly because Paul is so connected with what the gospel actually is. Boltman insisted that the key point is that our true and ultimate ground is in God and God alone. God and God alone, not in denomination. God and God alone, not in political party. God and God alone, not in culture. God and God alone, not in checkbook. Do I need to go on? 
if we live this, then we open ourselves up to the transformative vision and the radical invitation of the Trinitarian God. And if we do this, then we have freedom. This is Christian freedom. We are freed from worldly claims and re-enter all relationships as co-participants with Christ. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was sitting in that Latin Mass. Can you believe it? All of Pam's family gathered together, a bunch of different people from different political perspectives. And then, as a Presbyterian, eh, I'm not so thrilled about the Latin Mass for a lot of different reasons. We do things very differently. The girls were just like, what's going on? Why, why are we not doing this? It was so easy for me to slip into what? Believing that God is on my side. Believing that God sees things the way that I do. Which is not the gospel. Oh, Lordy. You don't want the gospel of Scott Starbucks. That's not the gospel. And so somehow, in what Paul is saying, is that, look, there's nothing wrong with marriage. In fact, God ordained marriage. There's nothing wrong with buying a house. That is a wonderful gift of God for ministry. But recognize that those things themselves do not set you free. In fact, oftentimes, it's a way of binding yourself unless you're really connected to God with a new type of servitude that actually moves you out of Christian freedom and away from the gospel. But Paul knows that that's what we tend to do. And so earlier in the passage, he tells the Corinthians that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Through the Holy Spirit, they do have the ability to do this. And to not be hung up on relationships. That no relationship will defile us. No relationship will defile us. We can throw open our arms. Because even when we see our enemies, that we so easily think, well, they must be an enemy of God. God can be at work. And it is God who is at work in the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the books that I listened to on this trip was, uh, gosh, a, um, a biography of a bassist of a rock band I grew up with whose parents survived the Holocaust in concentration camps. And he's talking about it for the very first time. It made me think of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer said, there is meaning in every journey that is unknown to the traveler. If you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, just think about that for a moment. There is meaning in every journey that is unknown to the traveler. I tried to control so much on this very, very quick trip of hours to Southern California. The stuff I'm going to remember is what I didn't control, what surprised me, who showed up on the plane conversations I never knew were going to happen. 
That's the gospel. That's how God works. The key question is, do we have that vision? Is that our vision? 